If you have a Bible, as Brother Hamilton would say, if you turn to 1 Samuel 24. So, you know, we've kind of been hit and miss on the life of David here, but we're going to be right back in it. We did 1 Samuel 23 back in December. So we're going to look at 1 Samuel 24. And the title of the message is Love Your Enemies. Love Your Enemies. So before we start reading, I just want to say, you know, a lot of people... You know, they want to be rid of trials. Now, we heard a lot of testimonies today of people that went through trials and saw God's faithfulness. But, you know, a lot of times you just think, man, if I could just get my spouse to just be a little more understanding, life would just be a bowl of cherries, right? Or if we weren't just constantly being stretched in our finances, it just seems like all the time we never have enough to make ends meet. I've been having this healing trial. It's been whatever going on for a long time. If we could just get rid of that, you know, everything would be good. It's been said everyone is either coming out of a storm, in a storm, or headed for a storm. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but that's just the way it is. So we just need to see that in this present world that we live in, and for the short time that we are here, that it is our crucible of testing to get us ready for the next life. We just have to look at our trials are that way. To illustrate this, the difference in the musical tone of a good versus a bad violin is more in the material that's used to make it than in the way it was made. The quality of the material is everything. And this famous violinist, he would like to make his own violins for the simple reason is he wanted a certain type of wood. And what he would do, he wouldn't go out in the woods to find the tree he was going to make that violin is. He'd take a walk up these mountains and he'd go out to where there was this cliff and there was these trees that got the brunt of the storms that came against that cliff. And those storms produced a type of wood with the resiliency and the grain that he couldn't get anywhere else. And he would only use the side of those trees, the wood from the side of the trees, where the wind was constantly up against them. Remember, we talked about that, that wind's blowing you and those trials just keep coming at you. But that was the type of wood and the way he would make those instruments. And that's what God does. That wind and the adversity makes us the musical instrument of heaven when God's done with this. And that's the way it is. So we need to look at our life as a life of preparation, no matter where we are in life. God says to be faithful even if you're a slave, a servant. So we don't have slaves and servants in America anymore. But sometimes your job can make you feel like you're about that level. John Steele, Isaac's dad, he used to always tell me, paintings under the curse. I was ready to amen him. I mean, it was always like kind of a lowly occupation, but you got to just be content. We've talked about this before, where God has you, the trials he has you, the station he has you in life. Because he tells slaves, you just be the best slave you can. You know, you're working some entry-level job, you're working for somebody, and you just, man, I'd love to be out from under this guy's thumb. Well, Paul says, if you're a slave, be happy there. Be the best slave you can. Be obedient. That's your testimony. And it says, if you will do that, it says several times in the New Testament, God will reward you. You could be a housekeeper. It's like, man, this is about the most thankless job you could ask for. It probably is. But if you're faithful in what God's given you to do, Proverbs 31, he will reward you. He really will. So we have the trials that we're here. There's no getting around it. We're going to have trials. And we just need to say, can we have the spirit of God manifested through our trials, not looking for a way out necessarily. And that's what David's had to experience. Like We're not going straight through the book of David, but we've looked at enough things to where Saul has been constantly after him. Ten to 15 years has been after him. And it's just doing a work in him. God's doing a work from him, chasing him around a mountain. That's what we saw last When we looked in chapter 23, it hadn't been that long ago, it was December 25th. The end of chapter 23, Saul's chasing him around his mountain. He's got him cornered in. He is ready to wipe him out, to destroy David and his men. And what happened? God sovereignly moves and does what? The Philistines are attacking, sends a messenger. The Philistines are attacking Saul, and Saul hears that. He's like, I better take care of business. They're close to my house. And he takes off, and David is delivered. You know, what's funny is, Saul was like Balaam. He can't see God's hand and what's going on. The donkey had more sight than he did, didn't he? And that's the way Saul is. Saul has tried to throw a javelin at him. How many different ways he's tried to kill David and every time God has delivered him, except he is blind with jealousy. But you would think he'd finally catch on. But when you're unregenerate, you can't see. You can't see God's hand. And you've got to have a donkey rebuke you. 
And even that doesn't always work. So anyways, he left David for a time, but we're beginning here. That's giving you the context in chapter 24. He's right back. And so we'll pick up in 1 Samuel 24, beginning in verse 1, and it says, And it came to pass when Saul was returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men upon the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheep coats by the way where was a cave. And Saul went in to cover his feet. And David and his men remained in the sides of the cave. And the men of David said unto him, Look, behold, the day of which the Lord has said unto thee, Behold, I will deliver thine enemy into thy hand, that thou mayest do to him as it shall seem good unto thee. And then David arose and cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privily. And it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him, because he had cut off Saul's skirt. And he said unto his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth mine hand against him, seeing he is anointed of the Lord. So David stayed his servants with these words, and allowed them not to rise up against Saul. But Saul rose up out of the cave and went on his way. David also arose afterward and went out of the cave and cried after Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed himself. And David said to Saul, Wherefore hearest thou men's words, saying, Behold, David seeketh thy hurt. hurt. Behold, this day thine eyes have seen how that the Lord has delivered thee into my hand in the cave. And some bade me to kill thee. But mine eyes spared thee, and I said, I will not put forth mine hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yea, see the skirt of thy robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the skirt of thy robe and killed thee not. Know thou and see that there is neither evil nor transgression in my hand. I have not sinned against thee, yet thou huntest my soul to take it. The Lord judge between me and you. And the Lord avenge me of you, but mine hand shall not be upon you. As saith the proverb of the ancients, wickedness proceeded from the wicked, but mine hand shall not be upon thee. In other words, David saying, I'm not wicked. After whom is the king of Israel come out? After whom dost thou pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? The Lord judge therefore between me and thee, and see and plead my cause, and deliver me out of thine hand. And it came to pass when David had made an end of speaking these words unto Saul, that Saul said, Is this thy voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me good, whereas I have rewarded you evil. And you have showed this day how you have dealt well with me, for as much as when the Lord had delivered me into your hand, you didn't kill me. For if a man find his enemy, will he let him go well away? Wherefore the Lord reward thee good, for thou hast done unto me this day. And now behold, I know well that thou shalt surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in thine hand. Swear now therefore unto me by the Lord that you will not cut off my seed after me, and you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swear unto Saul. And Saul went home. But David and his men get them up into the hold. And Father, we just ask that this example of David that we have here, that he's a type of our Lord Jesus Christ and what we're called to be as disciples. And I ask, Lord, that you'll show us through this how we can apply this truth, these truths in this chapter to our lives and that we can be more godly people and we can love our enemies as you want us to do, that we can be your children. And I thank you that you'll do that for us today in Jesus' name. So there's three principles, if you're taking notes, that I want to look at today. We're going to have three headings or whatever. And the first one is going to be, what we're going to see in this chapter is that God's promises need to be fulfilled in God's time and way and not ours, not our time and way. The second thing we're going to look at is we are not to avenge ourselves on our enemies, but leave vengeance to the Lord, to God. And the last thing we'll look at is we need to respect God-appointed leadership. So the first thing, God's promises need to be fulfilled in God's time and way and not ours. So what we have here, going through these first seven verses, so David has just been delivered from Saul. We said that in chapter 23. And Saul's right back after him. Like we said, it was nonstop for David. 
this persecution of Saul went on for 10 to 15 years. I mean, that's a long time to be on the run and having somebody after you, especially it's the king. And it says in verse 1, he came to and Jedi. I've been there. I've seen that. It's right down by the Dead Sea. And you ride along the road on the Dead Sea and you can look up. You can't see all of them. I understand there's thousands of caves. There's just tons of them. And there's a ton of water. It's like almost like an oasis. So this is the perfect place for David and his men to hide out temporarily. Because for one thing, they can easily see what's coming at them. And I'm saying Saul, it says, is coming at him. He takes 3,000 of the best troops of Israel to come after David and his little band of 600. And that's why like, David's like, what are you? I'm a flea. And you're after me? I'm a dead dog. What am I? I'm worthless. And you're going to all this trouble to get me. But I'm saying, you can see in verse 2, he's coming after him. He would easily be able to see him. And what happens then is, David and his men, they see Saul coming. They get in the back of this cave, apparently, right? In verse 3, the Bible is a realistic book in so many ways. Because what it says in the King James is, is that Saul went into the cave. David and his men, they're clear back in the dark recesses of that cave. But it says Saul goes into that cave to cover his feet. Oh, what does that mean? So it's an idiom, not an idiot, it's an idiom. So the New King James translates that, attend to his needs. And if that doesn't make sense to you, almost every other translation will say he went in to relieve himself. Do we all understand? So it's an idiom. It's just like my father-in-law, this just used to drive me batty, but it shows the older generation. He would say, is there a John around here? Well, I'm thinking, yeah, I'm right here, but you're equating me with a toilet, you know? But I'm saying that's an idiom. You don't take it literally. You're not going to sit on me, but anyways. So that's what's going on here when it's saying Saul's covering his feet. So, you know, David and his men are, like I said, they're back there, and Saul's coming in from that bright light, but he can't see him anyways. He's probably trying to get his focus on all that. And, you know, so what's he going to do if he's going to use the bathroom? He's going to take his robe off and lay it down and probably go a little bit away from there. That's what I would do. Right? So that's what's going on. And David and his men, though, they see what's going on here. And here's Saul. He's vulnerable. And they're anxious to take care of this situation, take advantage of it. Look what it says in verse 4. And the men of David said unto him, Look, behold, the day of which the Lord said unto thee, I will deliver thine enemy into thy hand, that you may do to him as it seemed good to you. Ah, they're into that. But do you really think that's what God said or that's what they said? Because there's no, it's not recorded anywhere that God said that. In fact, that would be against what God would say to do. And I don't think he did. But what happens? So they see David. He had to pull out his sword and they're watching him. They're saying, this is the day. And they're watching him and he goes up. But instead of cutting off Saul's head, what does he do? Cuts off part of his robe. Huh, I had to be like, what in the world? We thought this chase was over, right? And verse 5 tells us then that it says, David's heart smote him. His conscience pricked him. And you're thinking, well, what for? He didn't do anything. He was probably going to kill him. Maybe his conscience would have pricked him after that. But all he did was cut off part of his robe. It says a corner of his robe is what it really is. Cut off his skirt, a quarter of his robe. But here's what David did. What does the robe represent? They take the robe off those kings and tear them apart and divide them in. It represents his kingly leadership. This is the kingdom. And you cut off part of that. It's an insult. You're saying that part is mine. I'm telling this is what's going to happen. And that's what David's convicted over. He shouldn't have done that. That kingdom wasn't his, not even part of it. It's all still Saul's. And that's what he's convicted over. And he goes back and he tells his men, he says, you know, it's not right to touch God's anointed. And I'll tell you what, you think those guys just sat back and thought, man, that's, that's good, David. We, we like what you're saying. You've got to remember who these guys were. So we're in chapter 24, just briefly, if you don't mind. Turn back to chapter 22 and look in verse 2, just so we know who David's dealing with. Here's the group he had gathered around him. It says, and everyone that was in distress and everyone that was in debt and everyone that was discontented 
gathered themselves unto him, and he became a captain over them, and they were there with him about 400 men, and they added 200 later on. So you got all these distressed, discontented, that's the people you have with you. I mean, what a crowd he's got following him, right? And so here's this discontented group. They're, they're discontented before they got to him, and now they've been on the run for a while, and they're seeing, here's this guy going to do what he has every right to do in their mind, and he's not doing it. They're not happy about it. And so what has to happen? Look in verse 7. He tells him, he says, look, David stayed his servants. That word stayed means to tear or to cut up. And it's saying he had to come on strong and tell them, rebuke them, to restrain them from killing Saul. Because they were probably telling him, look, if you won't do it, we'll do it for you. No problem. It bothers your conscience. It doesn't bother ours one bit. And that's what it's saying. He had to stay them. He had to hold them verbally back. Y'all aren't going to do this. I mean, he had to kind of put his foot down on it. So what's going on here? What are we seeing here? We're saying things have to be done in God's time and way. Because they're telling him, they're putting the pressure. Look in verse 4 where they tell him, Behold, the men of David saying to him, Behold the day of which the Lord said unto thee. I mean, they're breaking out in... This is the day, this is the day that the Lord has, he's made it. Look what he's done, David. He's given it right into your hands. And everybody knew that David was to be the king. Everybody knew it. You look back just one chapter, just a few verses up, chapter 23, Saul even knew it. When Jonathan came to David in verse 17, he said unto him, Fear not, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find thee, and thou shalt be king over Israel, and I'll be next unto thee, and that... Also, Saul, my father, knows. So Saul knew that David was going to be king. And here everybody knew it, and it seems like it's God's will, and God is bringing his will to pass, and he's putting Saul's neck out there like I did when I cut a chicken's head off one time on a stump. Just laying it right out there for him. Here you go, David. This kingdom will be yours in no time. Seemed to be coming to pass. And that is the test isn't it? Because the devil will take a promise that God has given us and he'll tempt us to achieve it in our own way and not God's way. And we have a lot of examples of that in the Bible, don't we? How about Abraham? I mean, that's a hard thing he had to do, taking on that name Abraham when he's an old man and believe for something that the world had never seen happen before. Two old people well past the age of childbearing to have a son and that had to be a lot of pressure on him. He had to be dealing with doubt. And then old Hagar has Ishmael. Oh, that Ishmael may live before you. My trial's over. And God says, you're not going to do it in your time, in your way. In fact, in doing it that way, he brought trouble on his people. It's still up to this day. Jesus in the third temptation is basically the same thing. The devil says, I will give you the world and all its glory. And he did have it to give to Jesus. And it was going to be Jesus's one day. He knew that. But that was not God's way. Why? Because he would have to violate truth. And that is you don't bow down and worship the devil in any sense. that He's like, I'm not going to get it. It'd be nice to get it in a bloodless way. <laughs> that was a real temptation there. But I'm not. Because what is better to gain the whole world or to suffer in obedience to God? Which is better? That's the test the Bible gives us. And like I said, David was anointed king, been on the run for a long time. But is it more important for him to get that throne? Is that the more important thing in his life or to be obedient to the Lord? Joseph had to go through that. He hadn't done a thing wrong. God had given him a promise that his brothers would bow down to him and he would be in an elevated position. And here he is as low as it gets in a jail. And God has him give a dream interpretation it seems like it's going to get him right out of there and instead what happens the guy forgets about him and he's two more years down there and that had to be like man all this happened because I was obedient to the Lord tough had to be tough for Joseph and a lot of times the devil doesn't he he gets people like just like with David here the temptations could come to us in our minds by ourselves, but a lot of times he's going to use people to try to persuade you. David's men, they are pressuring him with words to get him to bend. And he has to use strong words to get him to stop. You know, they're sick of running. They don't have any homes, constant fear and tension in their lives. And that's what it was with Jesus. He had to do the same thing, didn't he? 
You know, when he tells him, he says, I'm going to have to die. Peter says, oh, no, you're not going to do that. Far be it from me, Lord, that that should happen to you. And Jesus had to use a pretty strong word with Peter, too, didn't he? Pretty strong. Get thee behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me, for you savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. And that's the test. We see what God says. We see how he wants us to live. And there's going to be pressure from all around. It could be well-meaning pressure even to get you to compromise on what you know is right. And we've got to just be to where we are going to stand on God's word because we cannot compromise truth. And the promise had already been given, touch not mine anointed. That goes back to Genesis 20. And David knew that. That was a principle. That angel comes to you. You have this dream in the night telling you to do something that you know violates the word. What are we told? An angel or anyone else comes and presents another gospel other than what you've known and received. You better reject that angel. That supernatural revelation you think is coming to you. It's always going to be God's word because God's not going to send an angel or a, a human or anyone else to tell you to do something that contradicts his clear teaching in the Bible. And we need to remember that. So there's a lot of illustrations I could give. And I was in prison when I was going in that segregation unit. And I met this guy that had just become a Christian. But he'd just come into jail, too. And he says, well, I got this situation here to where they've hired this lawyer for me and all that. And the lawyer tells me that if I will say, if, basically, if I will lie, I, he can get me out like within a week or two. And I said, well... They're asking you to lie. Did you do what you, they, you're saying? You, he goes, yeah, I did it. I said, how you can't do that as a Christian? And he went back and told his family that. And his family's like, yeah, that's easy for that guy to say because he's not the one facing two more years in jail. So what did he do? He lied and got out of prison. But you know what he did? What if God in those two years, or maybe it would have only been one, who knows what could have happened, right? If he'd have been faithful, he was going to do a work on in him. Maybe there's some people there he needed to share to God. I don't know. But he bypassed God's plan. And not only that, the other thing we have to remember is when we short circuit something because we want relief and we're not going to be obedient to the Lord, we have to live with our conscience, don't we? You got to live with that. You can't get away from that. So it's not like if you miss it, God can't forgive you, but that's the temptation that comes. Or, you know, God promises a wife. And, you know, back when I got saved at 21, I'm at that age. <laughs> and I'm praying for a wife. And there's nobody at church. I've, I've talked about this before. But at my work, they get this girl that's going to take over my job. And she's, uh, I've told Lisa, Lisa knows about this, because we don't talk about old ex-girlfriends, boyfriends. It's not good for a marriage. But anyways... <laughs> This was a long time ago, right? But this girl, I'm saying, she was cute. I mean, whatever. And they're trying to set me up with her. And, and I had to work right beside her the whole time. I had to flat out just tell her one time, no, you know, this, uh -uh, I'm not interested. I'm sorry. Please. I really like you. You're very nice. But she didn't believe like I believe. They're like, well, she's a Christian. I'm like, I know she, I'm not doubting that. There's no question about that. But this is not what God's given me. And so, you know, the temptation is, oh, that Ishmael may live. Or in this case, oh, that Raquel may live. I mean, that's the temptation that's going to come to young people. You're young and you're thinking, I'm not getting any younger. I'm getting older and I really want to get married. And I'm saying, you got to press in. Come to me. I'll pray with you. Believe me, I did. That's what I had to do. I'd spent a lot of time on my face at that time praying that God would have mercy and send me Lisa. I didn't know it would be Lisa. But praise God he did. And I'm saying he's faithful. I didn't just claim it and move on. I spent some serious time in intercession because it was a serious thing for me. I want to be married to somebody the rest of my life. I, I want it to be the right person. I don't want it to be somebody that's going to be my Ishmael dragging me down. That would be my counselor. You're a contractor and you're bidding on a job and you're bidding against somebody else and you need the work, you need the money. And the temptation is to talk that other guy down. He's not reliable. He'll take it, you know, and say things about him to talk him down rather than just trust God. Just give an honest bid and just pray and just say, I'm putting this in your hands, Lord, and trust him to see that he's faithful rather than trying to manipulate the situation and be like, well, you know, say things just to get that job. And well, God's promised to prosper me. And you're doing ways to try to make it happen that are unethical. You've got to just stay with the Bible, stay with the word and trust in the Lord. Or you got that new sofa that you want and you're saying, all right, I'm going to start off with something relatively small. 
to exercise my faith that I could see God's faithfulness in. And after two weeks, you still don't have your sofa and you're like, well, Ishmael becomes the visa card. I'm going to use that visa card. But you can do that or can you just act your faith? The old way we used to do things, I'm trusting the Lord. Well, I'm going to do something and I'm going to just save whatever little bit because you're like, I don't have money. I don't have money to buy a couch. And maybe it's only two dollars a week. I'm going to act my faith. I'm going to start setting that aside. That's my couch money. Like we've talked about, God can take your little and make a whole lot out of it because God looks down and he says, look, this person here, they're going to trust me. They're going to do what they can. And he can put it because I've had this happen in my life, not with the sofa, but with something else. I didn't have any money and I needed something. And I'm like, I'm going to do what I can to act my faith and trust the Lord. And he put it on a brother's heart. I never said a word to anybody. And it could be this case with your sofa. You don't tell anybody. Don't make your needs known. And all of a sudden, he puts it on somebody's hearts that's praying to give you X number of dollars. So the sofa's $350. And you're like, that brother gave me $300. And I've got my little 50 over here, my five loaves that I've been faithfully saving for weeks. And I've got enough. God's blessed me to get my couch. And here's the thing about that. You can use your Visa card, but you know what you don't experience? You don't experience meeting Jesus to see him come faithfully to meet your needs. You don't get to experience the faithfulness of God, that encouragement from seeing him do what he says he will do that will carry you forward from a couch to something bigger to whatever else. And then you've got your Ebenezer stones that you can look back on. Oh, man, does that help. And sometimes I need to write down some of them because I'll forget about something. I'll be like, man, I forgot. Lisa will bring some. I forgot about that. Praise God he was faithful there. And that'll just encourage you in the future. But that's why we see here David, despite the temptations, despite the pressure, he says, I'm going to be true to the Lord. Let God do it in his time and in his way. And that's how we grow. And that's how we learn to know the Lord, right? Just trust in his time. And really, what do we need to trust in? We've talked about this a lot, and it's easy to lose sight of this. What are we really trusting in? God's love and concern for us, right? Casting all your care on him. Why? Because he cares for you. So no matter if it's healing, finances, a marital situation, emotional issues you have, depression, you got to trust the Lord. Amen. So the second thing I want to see here in this chapter is that we should not avenge ourselves on our enemies, but leave it to God. It starts off there in verse 8 that David, he calls out Saul and bows down in humility. David arose afterwards and went out of the cave and cried out after Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. And Saul looks behind him and David stoops with his face to the earth. And David goes on to tell him, he says, Look, God had delivered me into your hands. But I didn't do you any harm. Even despite these men that are with me, they wanted me to kill you. But he says, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't touch the Lord's anointed. And in verse 11, he proclaims his innocence. I've never done you harm, never done anything against you that you're accusing me of. But you know what he does, though? In a respectful way, he confronts Saul, doesn't he? Because at the end of verse 11, what does he say there? He says, yet thou huntest my soul to take it. He says, I haven't done anything to deserve what you're doing, but yet you've come after me like a hound dog, relentless. And so what does he do? Verses 12 to 15, he says, I'm going to put it in the Lord's hands. I haven't done anything to deserve this. You're coming after me, but nonetheless, I'm not going to be the one to cut your head off. I'm going to put it in the Lord's hands. Verse 12, the Lord judge between me and thee, and the Lord avenge me of thee. He says, but mine hand shall not be upon thee. Now, let me ask you, is that the world's way of operating? Does the world turn the other cheek? <laughs> I read this story, these two motorcyclists, they go into this truck stop restaurant, and here's this little skinny guy sitting over there eating by himself, and these two big burly motorcycle guys, they're gonna, they start picking on him, and they're trying to irritate him, get him upset. So they start saying things to him, and whatever, and finally one of them goes over to his tray of food and just flips it and flips it on the ground. And a little skinny guy just looks at him and stands up and walks out of the restaurant into the parking lot. And those two guys are telling that waitress, they say, ah, that guy, he sure isn't much of a man. Sure isn't much of a man. And she's looking out the window and she's looking out that window and she says, well, you know what? He's not much of a driver either. 
because he just pulled his rig and just ran over two motorcycles on his way out. So my point is that's the world's way of dealing with things even when you're skinny and scared. You're still going to get your vengeance, right? And Saul tells David that. Look at verses 18 to 19. He says, you have showed me this day how you have dealt well with me for as much then as the Lord has delivered me into thy hand. You didn't kill me. Because look what he says in verse 19. For if a man find his enemy, well, he let him go well away. Nobody does that is what he's saying. Nobody does that. Wherefore, the Lord reward thee good for that thou hast done unto me this day. And Saul admits, you didn't do to me, David, what anybody else would have done. And so what are we saying? Shouldn't there be a difference in how when people do us wrong, we as God's people deal with the situation versus the world? Should be a difference. So if you put something there and turn over to Romans 12, please. Familiar passage, but we'll look at it. Romans chapter 12, verses 19 to 21. And Paul writes this to the Romans. He says, dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Verse 21, Be not overcome of evil. But how are we supposed to deal with evil? Overcome evil with good. And we've got that perfectly illustrated in 1 Kings 6 with Elisha. You know, the king of Syria, every move he makes, somehow Israel seems to know what's going on. And he's like, I've got a spy in my midst. And they're like, no, you don't. There's this prophet over there in Israel that God speaks to, and he tells him everything we're going to do. And so the king of Syria is like, well, then I'm going to get that guy. And he knows he's in Dothan, and he sends all his troops there. And here's these troops surrounding Dothan. And Elijah's servant, Gehazi, he's like scared to death. And Elijah's just cool as a cucumber. And he prays, Lord, just open his eyes that he can see we are not by ourselves. And God opens that servant's eyes and he can see surrounded by angels in fiery chariots. Sees that. And then the next thing Elijah prays is, God, would you smite these Syrian troops with blindness, which God does. And they take those troops and they say, we'll go on, we'll lead you to the man you're looking for. <laughs> and they take all those troops and they march them right on over to Samaria, the capital of Israel, right to the king. And the king is drooling because he is unsaved. And he's like, here's what he tells Elisha, my father, shall I smite them? Shall I smite them? Because that's what the world would do. These people have been persecuting and hounding these all this time. And here's my chance to get rid of them, get rid of the army. And Elisha says this. Thou shalt not smite them. Wouldest you smite those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? You wouldn't do that. He says, set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. Set bread and water before them. What does that sound like? What we just read in Romans 12. If thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. So there's a difference in the way God's people handle vengeance. They believe it in God's hands. It doesn't mean you like what somebody's doing to you. So you got somebody hassling you nonstop, and you get a chance to hurt them. Maybe you physically can hurt them, or you're tempted to do that, right? You know what we have to do is let our conscience speak to us like David's conscience spoke to him. Doesn't your conscience do that to you? I've had that happen. Sometimes I went on and said what I shouldn't have said, and my conscience is still smiting me, and i got to repent and whatever, right? But well, that's the difference between David and Saul, their conscience. Saul's conscience was seared. He's going after David, acting totally ungodly and wicked. It doesn't bother him one bit. Not one bit. And here David, when he starts to violate God's word because he's God's child and has a tender conscience, his conscience smites him right away. Man after God's own heart, that's what he did. And you know, not only that, he did something that's the next step harder. He repented before his men. Go back to 1 Samuel 24. Look in verses 5 and 6. And it says, And it came to pass afterwards that David's heart smote him because he cut off Saul's skirt. And look in verse 6. He said unto his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth mine hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. 
He had to repent to the Lord. He also had to repent in humility before these guys. That's a humble person there that did that. When someone gives you no respect, treats you like dirt, what we're seeing is here, you can't react. We've got to do what the Bible says. Instead, the Sermon on the Mount says we have to do them good. Help them out. Give them cold water. Speak nice to them. You know, the soldiers that came to arrest Jesus, they weren't coming to bless him, were they? And Jesus probably might have been the one that drove the nails in his hands. That doesn't say. That's pure speculation. But one of them, Peter's trying to split his head in half and wasn't real good aim and got his ear cut off. And what did Jesus say? It serves you right. You're coming here to do me wrong. Don't you know who I am? Instead, what did he do to his enemies? He put that ear back on there, performed a miracle for somebody that was going to drag him away and crucify him and treat him like dirt. So I don't know how many, I think a lot of us have seen that movie Fireproof that they put out. You know how that movie went? The husband probably had the greater evil. He's hooked on pornography and she's finding out about it. But both of them are just going at each other like cats. You remember that movie? Going at each other like cats. And finally, she's going to file for divorce. And that husband realizes, I'm a dog and my life's falling apart, right? So he repents. He gets hold of God. And so what did he do? He started doing nice things for her. It wasn't like he was totally innocent and all that, but he keeps doing nice things even to the point of he'd been saving money to get this boat, his heart's desire. And he's like, well, I'm going to, and she's still been treating him like dirt. But he's a Christian looking for reconciliation. And he takes that money and buys the mother-in-law a wheelchair she needed without telling his wife, right? But what happens when his wife finds out about that she breaks down and things end up working out at the end of that marriage. It saved their marriage. And so I'm saying everybody in here that's married and not married, when you have issues with people and issues within your marriage, the first thing that usually happens is that icy cold silence. That's just a temptation or you just things just don't get worked out like they should. But it's those little acts of kindness. I heard a man years back say this, that if you have to have your face in the dust licking up dirt, to make things right, you need to be willing to do that to be a peacemaker. Me and Lisa, I mean, sometimes I'm like, God, why did I hear that way back then? Because that's what you got to do. I'm sorry. You look nice. A soft answer. They all go a long way with God working in a situation, doesn't it? I can't say I've always been the greatest at that. But like I said, you got to be willing to bow your face into the dust even when you know you're right. It's not just because the other person's right. Even when you know you're right and they're wrong, you've got to bow your face. And that's what David did. Look at verse 8 again. Look at this. David rose afterwards and went out of the cave and cried after Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. And Saul looked behind him. Look what David does. Stooped with his face to the earth and bowed himself. He's eating dirt when he could have killed this guy and he's being done wrong. And that's not easy to do, very hard to do, but it's what David did. But here's the point, though. Look what that produced. Look what that humility and wanting to be a peacemaker, look what it produced. Look in verses 16 to 20. And it came to pass when David had made an end of speaking these words unto Saul, that Saul said, Is this thy voice, my son David? And look what Saul did. He lifted up his voice and wept. Lifted up his voice and wept. What does it say back in Romans? When you do that, when you give that person something to drink, you give them something to eat, you do something nice, you do good to your enemies, you're heaping coals of fire on their head. And that's what happened to Saul. All of this pent up resentment, anger, all of it just starts coming out, doesn't it? His frustration, his jealousy, his conscience had been awakened. It broke him. But look at what happened there. You know, a soft answer turns away wrath and makes room for reconciliation. Now, Saul did not get reconciled to David. But many times, isn't that what happens when you don't react in kind? It leaves room. It gives space for the person to repent. David gave Saul plenty of room to repent and make things right with him. And it broke him down. Because when you react the other way, you take that away, don't you? You take that opportunity away a lot of times. He goes on and leaves David and comes back in after chapter 26. But anyways, being a peacemaker, like I'm saying, that is always a trait of a son of God. And we need to know that when God allows 
people to slander us and to hurt us. It's a test of faith. Think about it. That's really what it is. Are we going to return evil for evil? That's the test of faith. Or are we going to be like our Lord? Because it says of Jesus that when he was reviled, think about this, the Lord of glory, when he was reviled, he reviled not again. And when he suffered, he threatened not. But what did he do? In faith, it says he committed himself to him that judges righteously. And that's what you got to do sometimes. That's what David did, didn't he? He says, I could have taken off your head, but I'm not going to. Sometimes we go on and just take off somebody's head verbally. Because it's hard to just say, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to suffer this wrong. I'm going to be accused unjustly. And I'm going to do what the Lord Jesus did and what David did. I'm going to leave it in God's hands. Because he's the righteous judge. And that's what we're told. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Not ours. And so the third thing we want to look at today is we need to respect God-appointed leadership. So David wouldn't only not kill Saul, but he showed him respect in the way he talked to him. Because we've already read it. What he did was when Saul turned around in that cave, he called him my Lord. And he called him Father. He continued to show respect and honor him as the king. And he gives Saul the benefit of the doubt. He knew what this was all about, but he's like, why are you listening to those men that are telling you that David's out to take your throne? Well, he knew it was more than that, right? But David's being gracious to him. He's being respectful to him. And the question is, was Saul worthy of that respect? No, he wasn't. Not in himself, but God had appointed him to be the king, right? And so for David to kill Saul, from David's side, that wouldn't have been showing contempt for Saul. That had been showing contempt for God because God is the one that put him in place. So once again, if you would, please put something there in 1 Samuel 24 and back to Romans again. Romans 13, beginning in verse 1, let every soul be subject unto the higher power or authorities, for there is no authority or power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. He put them in place. Whosoever therefore resists the power, resists the ordinance of whom? Of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power or the authority? Do that which is good, and you will have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if you do that which is evil, be afraid. For he bears not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that does evil. Wherefore, you must needs be subject not only for wrath, but like David also for what? Conscience sake. And for this cause, he says, pay your taxes. Pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues. Tribute to whom tribute is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. So we pay taxes for God's appointed leadership. That's what it's saying there in verse 7, to govern. And that's everybody that governs. We're paying taxes and we're subject to, from the President of the United States down to the building inspector. For you contractors, I know you love him. You say, well, yeah, but some of these guys are real jerks. <laughs> you know, They're only in here for the power they can have over us helpless people. <laughs> Mr. Building Inspector, right? Well, that may be true. How do you think David felt about Saul? He was a jerk. I mean, I don't know how else you could say it. But listen, I like this quote I read from Chuck Swindoll. Chuck Swindoll said this. He says, we learned this in the Marines. You don't salute the man. You salute the rank. He says, even if an officer is wasted and drunk, you salute him. <laughs> I thought that was good. It's awful quiet in here, but it is the political season. I'm just putting this all in remembrance as a servant of the Lord. So just, we're good, right? First Peter 2 says this, 9 to 12, The Lord knows how to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished, but chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government. Presumptuous are they self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. 
whereas angels which are greater in power and might bring not railing accusation against them before the Lord. But these, as natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. Now, I'm glad I didn't write that. I didn't write it. I just literally read it. And if it bothers you that I just read that, you got an issue with the Lord, not me. Right? Amen. Because those are strong words. Because I think all of us have been guilty saying a little bit more about government officials, former, past, and present, than we should have. But Paul knew it wasn't right to rail on leadership. You're not too far away. Just turn back to Acts 23. Acts 23. And look what the Apostle Paul had to deal with here. Acts 23, beginning in verse 1, and it says, And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren... I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. Wasn't right. And Paul said unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall, for you sit thou to judge me after the law and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law. And they that stood by said, Paul, are you reviling God's high priest? And what did Paul say? Then said Paul, I didn't know that, brethren that he was the high priest, for it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. So what the high priest had done to Paul, it wasn't right. But Paul's like, hey, I'd, if I'd have known who he was, despite what he did to me, I'd have kept my mouth shut. I wouldn't have said a thing because you're not to speak against God's authority. And that's the way it goes. So we'll go back to 1 Samuel 24. We talked about this Wednesday, I believe, that thou shalt honor thy parents. It goes from the parents and moves right on up to the president is the whole principle there is that you're to honor those in authority. So, you know, maybe you're a young person in here or even an old person in here that you don't feel like your parents have treated you right and they've been unreasonable the way they treated you growing up. Maybe you're a grown person. It's always felt that way. You got a strained relationship. You know, my parents, they're just unreasonable. They could be just downright cruel at times with me. Like I said, that can even be adults that have bad relationships. I know what I'm talking about. And so the principle that we see here is, despite all that, the godly thing to do is what David did. Isn't that the principle we're seeing here? Let the Word of God speak to you. Because that's what we're seeing here. That Saul didn't deserve respect, but God had put him in a position of authority. Our parents are put in the same type of position of authority over us. As long as we live and they're alive, even after they're alive, you shouldn't disrespect them when they passed away. And David calls Saul, my Lord and my father. Now, he respectfully confronted him. Remember we read that in verse 11? He said, hey, you know, you've hunted my soul to take it. It's not right. I haven't done anything wrong. So it's not like he couldn't say what was going on, but he was respectful in the way he did it, and he honored Saul. And the Bible says we are to honor the king. So a young person in here, you may feel like your parents are jerks, and maybe they are. Maybe they are, and they don't even realize how big a jerks they are, so to speak. But if you're a young Christian person in here, you still need to deal with them in a respectful way, don't you? So you still, the best thing is listen to them respectfully. You don't slander them behind their back. You might even take out the trash without being asked. And when they recover from that, make them a bowl of soup. <laughs> Well, that's for all of us. I mean, everybody, it's just American way is we make heroes out of the anti-establishment people. It's in our culture. <laughs> it's a bad thing. And it carries over. So it's not just your parents. It's your teachers. Teachers are an authority, the principal of your school. And me and my wife are like, yeah, we're listening, Lord. You got to watch what you say because they do crazy things where my kids go to school that don't make sense. And you just got to watch because it carries over to your kids. Policemen. The way you deal with them, you get pulled over, you should be very respectful. Not, what do you want? I'm doing nothing. No, that's not going to get you anything but a ticket. But anyone in lawful authority. So if the person we have to submit to is as wicked as Saul, what's our recourse? It's right down there in verse 15. You put it in the Lord's hands. The Lord, therefore, be judge and judge between me and thee and plead my cause and deliver me out of thine hand. Sometimes we just have to leave things in God's hand, don't we? 
All right, so let's end with this. If you would turn to Psalm 57. Psalm 57 was written when David was in the cave. Tell you what, Greg, can you read Psalm 57 for us? Be merciful unto me, O God. Be merciful unto me, for my soul trusts in thee. Yea, in the shadow of thy wings will I make my refuge. Until this time is will I will cry unto God most high, unto God that performs all things for me. He shall send from heaven and save me from the reproach of him that will swallow me up. Selah. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. My soul is among lions, and I lie even among them that are set on fire, even the sons of men, whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens, and let thy glory be above all the earth. They have prepared a net for my steps, and my soul is bowed down. They have digged a pit before me into the midst whereof they are fallen themselves. Selah. My heart is fixed, O God. My heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise. Awake up, my glory, awake, Holy and heart. I myself will awake early. I will praise thee, O Lord, among the people. I will sing unto thee among the nations, for thy mercy is great under the heavens, and thy truth under the clouds. Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens, and let thy glory be above all the earth. Amen. All the people said? Amen. 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 My heart is fixed, and we just need to have our heart fixed on the Lord, trust in Him. So just to recap what I said, from this chapter in David's life, we learned three things today, right? That God's promises have to be filled in God's time and in God's way and not ours. And we should not avenge our enemies, but put it in the hands of the Lord. Amen. And we also need to respect, as we saw David did here, God-appointed leadership. Amen. It's my favorite section of Scripture, First and Second Samuel. It really is. You can read that and just imbibe the character of David. Good and bad, we can learn from him, can't we? A man after God's own heart. He certainly wasn't flawless, and neither are we. And yet God preserved him like we talked about, even in spite of some terrible sin. Preserved him and got him through it. And he'll do the same for us. Amen? Okay, let's pray. Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, we come before you as a church here, Lord, and... We ask you to look down on us as you look down on David and to keep your hand on us, Lord, and, and to get us through the lessons you want to teach us. Open our eyes, Lord, to your word and what you're trying to say to us as we go through trials in life. And give us all, Lord, a heart to trust you that we can see your faithfulness through our trials. And most of all, Lord, I ask you'll touch our hearts and our consciences that we can remember that when we're tempted to strike back and to avenge ourselves, that we're to leave that in your hands as hard as that may be. And I ask that you'll... Give us all the grace to do that, Lord, and, and remind us that that's the way the word to react. Amen. And that we're also to show respect to the leaders that you placed in our country all the way down, Father. Amen. And we thank you for your word and that you've spoken to us today and you've been here in our midst. And we do all that in Jesus' name. Amen.